Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. I was recently sent a content piece that I really loved and read a lot in this job. And there's some amazing content out there from a number of uh, different professionals in the industry and amateurs as well. But this one really crystallized a number of the challenges facing investors and potentially consumers right now. While central banks are talking about inflation and recovery, US markets are at record highs again. And I feel like I've said that a million times over the last few years, and they continue to make new ground. So for many investors, particularly those who've been around for a while, you start wondering when the music's going to stop. Today, I'm speaking with Hugh Selby-Smith from Talaria Capital, who's going to talk about eight stats, maybe a few more, uh, that investors can't afford to ignore. Hugh, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, great to be here. Thank you. Hugh, the piece we're discussing, it's a few months old, but it had some extraordinarily powerful numbers in it. You may have some new examples, but did you want to talk us through some of the global data points that have been really capturing your attention? Absolutely, Gemma. I think when drawing attention to any global data points at the moment, probably the quote of of US Senator Dirksen comes to mind, you know, a billion here, a billion there, and uh, pretty soon you're talking about real money. Um, I think, yeah, a couple of the stats that I'd sort of throw out there, from our point of view, um, you know, the scale of the fiscal largesse is pretty easy to underestimate because the numbers have got so large. You know, if we look at 2020, the US budget deficit was about 15% of GDP. Now, we're on track for double-digit fiscal deficits again in 2021. To put that in context, the GFC um, was less than 10%. So you're seeing an extraordinary level of government intervention to stimulate a whole range of economic outcomes. I think that's front and centre for us. The pace of you know, monetary policy intervention, even though we're talking about tapering in the markets currently, remains extraordinary. I mean, after nearly 11 trillion in 2020, um, central banks year to date to the end of October have done nearly 3 trillion of asset purchases. So I think you know, keeping the context about the range of fiscal and monetary um, uh, measures that have been impacting asset prices and economies is, is front and centre for us. I think the second sort of area that really is, is pretty mind-boggling is, is the amount of um, money that's flown into all sorts of different markets. Now, at Talaria Capital, we're involved in global equity markets, so I sort of have a much better feel for some of those statistics. But the US equity flows are simply prodigious. I mean, it's over 500 billion year to date. That's more than 150 billion uh, higher than the previous record full calendar year. And within that, we've really seen a change in the structure of the market as well, Gemma, where the speculative options market, and by that I mean really call options, that's where people are buying the right to own a stock um, at a higher price sometime in the future. Um, over October was um, was a record high. There was around about 538 billion um, notional exposure on average right through October. Now, the majority of that is calls. So that means that people are looking to benefit if share prices go up. Um, I think the average in October was, you know, 335 billion. Now, that's nearly in line with the underlying share volume of the entire US market, to put that in context. 
And the concentration within that and the duration is really interesting. So about 70% of those call options are two weeks or less, Gemma. So this isn't about, you know, the fundamentals, the earnings delivery. This is about saying, I think that, you know, stock A is going to be higher in four days' time and I will pay away to express that view and benefit if it's right. Of course, if you're wrong, then, you know, the cost of that option you simply lose. Now, the amount of money that's being spent is also prodigious. I mean, it's about uh, $16 billion a day is being spent simply to um, express a view that a, a share is going to be higher um, in, you know, as I said, less than, less than two weeks in the majority of cases. Now, within that, about half of all options traded in October were on two stocks. I mean, you think about that in the US market, you know, the S&P 1500. So, you know, more than half of that um, option uh, activity, which is greater than just the share market activity, was reflected in simply two names, which is Tesla and Amazon. And then there's two other areas I think I'd highlight to your listeners. Um, Within the market, the concentration um, around a small number of stocks has really never been higher. So the top 10% of the S&P 1500, for example, represents 71% of the market cap. Now, of course, that has implications for passive investors. So if you put a dollar into the S&P 1500, indeed, um, 71 cents goes actually into the top 150 stocks. You've only got 29 cents going into the remaining 1350 stocks. But even more than that, you've got this microclimate within the market where the top 10 stocks are over 28% of the S&P 1500. And then the final area, which is back to the real economy, the JOLT series, which actually measures um, job, job openings, for example, in the US, the total job openings as measured by jobs uh, JOLTs are actually higher than the total number of people who are registered as unemployed. So there is more people advertising for jobs than the total available unemployed pool of, um, of workers. So they're the kind of four areas and sort of eight stats, I guess, that I'd, um, that I'd uh, refer to that, you know, um, that, that are sort of catching our attention. Some of those numbers are absolutely incredible. I'd love to talk about those options because that's not something we've discussed before on this podcast and it's probably news to many people listening. I get questions all the time because uh, I speak about behaviour of retail investors in Australia. Do you have a feel for how much of this is coming from retail versus institutional sides of the market? The, the vast, vast majority of those less than two-week options are the retail market. The retail participation in the options market is um, something that we haven't seen to date. So that's the changing structure of the market. How can we see that? Well, actually, there's some good data around that that's available from um, in terms of contract size. Um, so, you know, the scale of the actual trade is, is one indication of, of that being retail. Uh, and also, actually, as I said, that really there's 50 stocks that effectively represent the entirety of that call option market. That's just amazing. Sorry, I, I'm sort of going on a complete sidebar here, but because we do get this question really frequently, you know, are you seeing Robin Hood type behaviour in Australia? Are you seeing all this kind of stuff? And we don't see it at all. Uh, it's simply not there in our investor base. And I'm sure there are parts of the market in Australia where you might see a little bit of this. But in the US, that's incredible when you consider that that's 
effectively the size of the full trading book, but just in options. That's amazing. So when you talk about the sheer volume of money that is flowing into global share markets and where it's gone so heavily into the US, so heavily concentrated in those mega cap stocks, you know, Tesla only made it into the S&P 500 by the skin of its teeth on profitability grounds a year ago. Uh, what's that telling you? Yeah, well, I think um, the big picture what it's telling you is, is that future returns are going to be very low, Gemma, because actually it's driven up starting valuations such that the mathematical fact is that in aggregate you're going to get low returns from a whole range of asset classes. And that's that's not only equities, but, of course, we've seen that in you know all pretty much fixed income securities are giving you a negative real yield as of today. I mean, this isn't a supposition. This is actually a fact as, as of today. Um, I think what it tells us, so that's the broad kind of biggest picture thing that I would um, convey to your listeners. I think within the market structure, which also you're asking about, it really highlights that you've got this three-speed market. So you've got that top 10 concentration, as you discussed around the fangs, I sort of talked about it as this microclimate that's um, fairly specific unto itself. Secondly, you've got an incredibly speculative component of the market, which is really best represented in the public media around meme stocks. You know, these are about behavioural opportunities to be able to profit for changes in prices rather than changes in value. And then actually the, the third thing is you've got the rest. And this is really that opportunity um, to be able to diversify and to be able to build a more robust portfolio that is um, fit for a whole range of market conditions and outcomes. Yeah, it's a real challenge for investors. You know, we've talked many times on this podcast about the impact of stimulus from central banks, from governments on the market and on the economy. You know, the numbers you're talking about put that in perspective. And I think the challenge a lot of our investors have had to contemplate is when the alternative is zero on the cash rate. And you know, also for many of our investors, they're priced out of the housing market either they're young and they're priced out completely or they may have contemplated buying an investment property and now that's not conceivable either. You know, the whole, uh, there is no alternative. The Tina principle is playing on people's minds, but then they also look at the share market and go, my God, everything's really expensive. Uh, Do you think the impact of government stimulus, it's there, it's so enormous, there's talking about tapering. Are there real risks that their hands are tied now and they're going to really struggle to wind back some of that stimulus in any meaningful kind of fashion? Well, let's be clear about stimulus. There's central bank monetary policy and then there's direct fiscal stimulus from governments. Certainly as an individual, what I would say is that I've never seen um, governments, you know, row back once they've got control of a, uh, of a printing press. I think the total global level of debt and the opportunity around kind of debt service and so on means that you are going to see um, interest rates below inflation for a very long time. So financial repression in effect. Now we saw that post the Second World War and it lasted around 40 years. So I think that's the base case. I think the second thing is, is can they row back? No, the big difference from the GFC is that we saw the governments get directly involved in um, generating Uh, real economic outcomes. So they didn't leave the heavy lifting only to central banks. What they got is directly involved 
with um, large injections into parts of the economy, but also into the commercial banking sector. So there was a whole range of credit guarantees, for example, to directly incentivize uh, and underwrite commercial bank lending. Now, I don't think now that we've got to that stage that governments will be able to relinquish the control effectively of, of that. I don't think there's anything in economic history to suggest that they will. And of course, they're incentivized on a much shorter term um, position to be able to actually, in effect, keep people's um, real incomes at least where they are in, in some terms. So, no, I don't think they will be able to row back. It's an incredible thing to watch. I've said quite a few times on this podcast. I feel like everything I learned at university is wrong. Uh, <laughs> all, the, uh, all the different things they tell you about how markets are supposed to work and how economies are supposed to work and what central banks are supposed to do and how things normalize, normalize over time. You, know, you talk about 40 years in the post-war era. Uh, it feels like we're in one of those kinds of periods and it's complicated because I think some of us made assumptions um, and I'm in the sum of us about normalization post GFC, and it just didn't happen. And so many investors, certainly I hear this from a lot of people, are sort of frustrated and confused. They think everything's far too expensive. They are very concerned about the level of speculation, particularly in the US, and feel that valuations are so far removed from prices, it's mad. But then how do you choose not to participate, right? The alternative is just not there. So you have, you have to participate. And there's this nervousness about when the music might stop. Do you want to talk us through how you approach that? Because you're a global fund manager. It's something that you have to grapple with every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, markets are only expensive or cheap depending on what your expected rate of return is for a start. So, you know, there's a calibration of expectation here. It's not about calling that markets are going to go down or up. They're simply priced to generate you this return from today over a, over a 10-year period, say. So I think that's the first thing to anchor yourself to. I would say the market is very much positioned for a continuation of broadly the last 10 years. And what I was suggesting in terms of the intervention most directly in fiscal terms by um, governments of developed governments, particularly around the world, is that the possibility for that um, to be different over the next 10 years has been greater than we've seen. Okay, so I think it's for that reason that the inflation outlook is dominating markets because it is a wealth tax. You know, it's, um, it's a tax that would be most felt in those companies I referred to as in the microclimate. Um, right, so let's forget what people are saying to you, what are they doing? Because we can see in aggregate where the money is, and I was talking about the concentration in the US market, the concentration around a whole range of individual securities, but also asset classes, and you referred to Tina. So I think the first thing that investors and savers can do is, you know, not to try to predict the weather, you know, we would say just simply carry an umbrella. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? And it's diversification. I referred to a three-speed market where there was this sort of whole cohort of stocks, many of which actually are beneficiaries in a rising inflation environment, for example, many which are attractively priced for long-term returns but don't fall in the microclimate or the mean. So you can simply sidestep that, in effect, by a rigorous bottom-up process and doing your work. 
I think the hard thing at the moment is the behavioural aspect for many people. You know, they are seeing and reading about fairly um, incredible returns over very short periods of time. And the best insulation against that is to anchor yourself to your long-term goals and expectations. You know, the noise in financial markets is perpetual and constant, and currently the noise is around a very small cohort of, of individual securities that are very much reliant on the recent past continuing into the future, and we don't think that that's a prudent way to manage anybody's money. There's a few really interesting points you've made in there. I think a lot of people would be thrilled to hear you say that there's a great deal of opportunity outside that 10% that dominates, I guess, dominates headlines as much as anything else. Uh, and also that there is uh, a cohort of stocks or of companies anyway that will benefit from rising inflation. I'd be grateful if you could talk through, I guess, the inflation risks that you see. I was having a conversation with someone I'm relatively close to who was struggling to explain the importance of inflation and I was saying, you know, it's what people pay for stuff, right? The term itself is incredibly boring and most people switch off when you use it. But when you have to pay $150 to fill up your car or the renovation you planned is going to cost you twice as much as you planned a year ago uh, or you can't simply get the stuff you wanted to get your kids for Christmas and have to go buy something quite twice as expensive, then that's the real impact of inflation. You're oh. talking about it running relatively high. Can you talk us through that? Oh, I'd love to. Listen, money is only an enabler for what it allows you to do is what I hear you saying, Gemma. You know, at the end of the day, um, it's, uh, you know, giving you the opportunity to live the life or um, participate and facilitate, you know, organisations and individuals close to you or more broadly your community to be able to, you know, um, deliver outcomes and, and so on that you aim to do. The thing about inflation is it's a wealth tax. So in 10 years' time, simply the delivery of those things to yourself or, you know, close family members or, or more broadly organisations and community um, projects that you wish to facilitate, you won't be able to do as much of that in an inflationary environment. That's actually why it matters. Um, so I totally agree with your assertion that, you know, it, it's what you pay for stuff and that's where you really get the, the wealth tax. You just simply can't actually do as much as you did before. You know, that, that's the reality. I think the second thing about inflation is it's very indiscriminate. You know, you could be an extremely prudent, disciplined saver over each month for, you know, a decade, and um, I could have inherited a, you know, gold necklace from my grandmother that sat in a vault box in the, in the, in the bank, and in 10 years, you're, you know, in real terms, able to live a far lesser life. And I haven't done any of that prudent thing. And yet I'm actually relatively insured against that. So it's very indiscriminate as well. So I think it's about providing certainty, ultimately, which is what we're trying to provide to our clients in terms of managing their money, about what they can expect in a real practical sense from their savings five, 10 15 years in advance. So that's that's why it really matters. You asked about um, the opportunity to be able to build um, diversification within your savings pool um, where you don't forecast that happening, but you're open to the possibility of it happening. I was referring before about the concentration in markets from a market capitalization point of view. But if I um, break up the S&P 1500, for example, into the 20% of the stocks that are most correlated with falling inflation, 
they re represent um, well over 50% of the market capitalization of the market. Now, if I have a look at the 300 companies in the S&P 1500 that are most correlated with rising inflation, they only represent less than 10%, comfortably less than 10% of the market capitalization. And there's some of the numbers really that underpin the assertion that the market is still positioned for a continuation of broadly the same over the last 10 years. So you've got 300 companies potentially um, that benefit from a rising inflation environment um, that you know, individual investors or indeed kind of fund managers like ourselves are able to actually kind of look at or come through their process as attractively valued and have additional benefits within the portfolio. Could you give us some examples of that? Like what sort of companies and what sort of sectors are going to be positioned well in a rising inflation world? I think most people understand prices go up. That may be beneficial to a company if they can charge more, but if they can't charge more, they're going to be in a bit of trouble. Can you talk us through how you calculate it? Yes, well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, let's let's think very big picture. Um, I think what we're also talking about here because of that concentration is that you need to diversify the source of return. You know, so over the last decade, you've disproportionately really seen the, um, in total return terms, the majority of that come from, from capital growth. Now, because of the concentration, what that means is that actually the indices would suffer greatly in aggregate, um, if there was a prolonged and persistent inflation that the market really did kind of start to price. So you're looking for a diversification of return type between, you know, income and capital. Remember, the decade prior to the last one just gone, more than 100% of the returns of the S&P market came from income. So that's, that's one source of, of diversification when you talk about companies. What about return type? Secondly, you really want to have highly cash generative companies um, today. So this isn't about getting paid a long time in the future. This is about getting your cash today because, of course, that reprices um, particularly quickly. You know, so if I'm getting 10% of my cash back today, there's an inflationary environment that's relatively high, I might get 12% of my cash back tomorrow. So that's kind of the second component. And this is where, you know, the market often talks about duration. You know, how long do I have to wait to get paid back my money for an investment in a company? I think the third thing is, is that broadly speaking, you'd be looking for companies that either have uh, low capital employed, so they're more service businesses and um, uh, so they don't have an asset base that needs to be replaced at ever higher prices. Um, that would be one component within the makeup of a company um, or indeed a relatively, uh, a company that's uses debt relatively prudently, but that is long-term um, termed out. So you could have debt a long time in the future um, and therefore you're able to actually keep at what turns out to be a very low real rate in terms of financing your business. Now, they're all general things. You asked about specifics in the portfolio and these came through our bottom-up process rather than any view in inflation, but we own, uh, for example, the largest um, the fertilizer company in North America, you know, a strategic asset around, depending on what numbers you use, around about 50% of the world's food production is totally dependent on fertilizer. We've got a structural growth in the population that, you know, is set to be nearly 11, well, nearly 10 billion by 5050 on most forecasts. Um, it has a cost advantage between the key input cost, which is actually energy 
The US is a relatively lower cost energy market than their global competitors in Europe and in Asia. And they generate around about 10% um, of the um, market capitalization of the company and free cash um, per annum over, over the forecast period in which we hold it. So that would be a good example. So, you know, in an inflationary environment, soft commodities would continue to move up, cost of food and so on. Um, and that would mean that their customers are able and um, incentivized to continue to pay um, ever-increasing prices for fertilizer because that's simply an input cost on, on their side. That's a really interesting example. And I think that one that would make a lot of sense to people <laughs> when we talk about food prices going up, it makes everyone very nervous. But for investors, there's uh, there's another way of thinking about it. Hugh Tellaria Capital's a new name for a lot of our investors. I think you would have uh, given people lots to think about. And I think people want to know more. Where should they go to find out more about you guys and what you're doing? Um, Gemma, I think the best place is probably to go to our website, which is tellariacapital.com.au. Um, when my mum's asked about how to learn more about what it is that, that I do, I suggest to her that she goes to the video section where actually um, we have a number of clients discussing how and why they use Tellaria in their portfolios to, to generate the certainty and the outcomes um, that, that they want to have to be able to live their life um, positively. Um, there's also an insight section there, Gemma, where listeners can read really more, in more detail about um, a few of the issues that we've been discussing. Yeah, I love that. It, um, as I said, it, I get a lot of content pieces to read and, and do a lot of reading and, uh, and some of the stuff you guys are doing is awesome. Hugh Selby-Smith from Delaria Capital, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great day. Thanks. I appreciate your time. Before we go any further, though, must let you all know that Tuesday, the 23rd of November is NAB Trades Charity Trading Day. It's an annual event. We give 100% of our brokerage on the day to a chosen cause. This year, it is primarily 20% will go to the ASX Refinitiv Foundation, but 80% will go to UNICEF's Give the World a Shot campaign, which is providing COVID vaccines to people who might not otherwise be able to access them around the world. It's an amazing day. We'd love you to be part of it. So if you you have any trades you've been thinking about placing and are not particularly particular about when you place them Tuesday 23rd of November we would love you to get on board thank you so much for listening also as always we love hearing from you we receive fantastic feedback and we love hearing about what you'd like to hear more about and your questions please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to speaking to you again soon I'm Gemma Dale thanks for listening Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.